This is Gavin Giovanoni. I'm doing my uh, MSLV update on my highlights uh, for Nectrums. I must admit that I hardly had an opportunity to see all the posters or go to all the sessions simply because I was involved in so many uh, meetings. Just to say that face-to-face uh, -face meetings like this are all about networking. Um, and I'll have to spend some time catching up uh, with the online content over the next week or two. I must admit it was fantastic getting back and actually meeting other people and seeing them. And this was the first time I actually came back to the MS community after my um, accident uh, uh, two years ago. And then my, uh, my uh, melanoma uh, diagnosis and surgery uh, earlier this year. So people were quite surprised to see the, me looking uh, well. <laughs> I must admit, I still have a few niggles from the uh, injuries. But anyway, it was, a, it was great to catch up with people. Um, to be honest with you, um, I think th the following highlights are what I would have come away with from, from reading the uh, abstracts um, going through the um, program as, as quickly as possible and looking at, and going to the, the various highlight uh, sessions at the end of the meeting. I think uh, top of the pops has to be ABV. There may not have been that much presented at the meeting around Epstein-Barr virus, but all the backroom chat was about EBV. And I think this has to be the number one issue or number one topic that was discussed by everybody. I think the good news for me was um, all the pharmaceutical companies I spoke to are now including Epstein-Barr virus in their long-term thinking about AMS. And some companies are even planning trials targeting ABV directly as a therapeutic target, which is great, great news. So finally, we're getting the MS community to come around, I hope, uh, to target EBV. Um, some of them don't realize it, but I kind of kept reminding them that uh, those are, those companies that are developing so-called routine tyrosine kinase or BTK inhibitors are targeting EBV. You know, we know from uh, basic science that Epstein-Barr viruses uses this, this kinase, routine tyrosine kinase, as a pro-survival signal in the memory B cell, which is the cell it survive, survives in uh, to keep it alive. And the very, very first BTK inhibitor licensed ibrutinib which is quite a dirty drug in that it actually inhibits quite a few kinases, does inhibit EBV-induced B-cell proliferation and also works against uh, EBV-associated lymphomas and has been shown to reduce EBV viral loads uh, in these, these patients. And this also includes CNS EBV-associated lymphomas. So this is uh, really exciting that, e that Ibrutinib does this. And that's one of the reasons why my colleague and my scientific partner, uh, David Baker, and I tried unsuccessfully to get our, a trial of Arbutinib off the ground about seven years ago. We almost got there, uh, but anyway, that's history. And water under the bridge, we now have uh, a large number um, of British tyrosine kinase inhibitors going forward in MS. And hopefully the, the hypothesis will be looked at in terms of are they working by EBV mechanisms. I suppose the big highlight in terms of EBV was the... Um, a presentation in the late-breaking session on the virus-specific T-cell receptor repertoire uh, in relation to people with multiple sclerosis versus, versus controls. This is actually quite surprising because this, <laughs> this particular bit of research has already been published and I actually commented on it uh, earlier this, uh, this year. And so I would refer you to my uh, previous MSL for newsletter, More Evidence That EBV Causes MS, which actually gives my opinion about this research. But anyway, it got 
to uh, a platform, people who hadn't read the paper or wasn't aware of it would have become aware of it. And so that's all the, all the better. We have some traction around EBV. So my next highlight will obviously be the brutine tyrosine kinase, uh, and it's clear dectrums that this is the next best thing in MS. I mean, there are four phase three trial programs underway. There's evabrutinib by Merck, tolibrutinib by Sanofi, fenbrutinib by Roche, and remibrutinib by Novartis that are all uh, recruiting at the moment. And there's a fifth, uh, uh, oralabrutinib by Biogen that's about to start, uh, I think, a phase three program. And there was a fantastic poster about a 6-BTK inhibitor by a company called Gossamer that's waiting in the wings. And I looked at the profile of that drug, and it looks very good. So let's see what happens to um, the BTK inhibitors. Anyway, there was a lot of discussion at the meeting about the emerging liver toxicity signal identified with this class of agents. And the question is whether this is going to be a problem for one or two compounds, or is it a class effect across all of the BTK inhibitors? And that we don't know yet. Um, um, however, the issue will almost certainly translate into clinical practice, and I think pharmacovigilance monitoring uh, will be required when the products are licensed, uh, and this is going to add friction to the prescribing of this class of therapy. I mean, potentially it could be de-risked, uh, or, or the, it could be made simple. And I heard some discussion, and we had some discussions around potentially self-monitoring for liver function tests at home. Um, I suspect even outside the MS market, there's a big uh, need for home monitoring for pharmacovigilance purposes. You know, maybe uh, point-of-care devices like, you know, what diabetics use for measuring glucose. Can we have devices in the home where you can measure your liver function tests and these report directly? into the cloud to the and healthcare professionals can act on those results. So I so this is something any, uh, that needs to be addressed. And are, are there any healthcare entrepreneurs out there listening to this? Can you develop such devices? Uh, I'm sure we in the pharmaceutical community are ready to adopt them into clinical practice. What was quite surprising that we saw the first COVID-19 vaccine data presented in relation to patients with MS on evabrutinib. And surprise, surprise, antibody responses and by implication T-cell responses that help the B-cells make antibodies were not blunted. So people on uh, ivabrutinib, okay, were able to make antibody responses uh, and recall responses and boost antibodies uh, when they had COVID-19 vaccine. So this is very surprising. The reason why it's surprising is that there is a condition called brutines agammaglobulinemia. So people who lack this enzyme are born with a uh, inborn error of metabolism, you know, the con you know, the genetic disorder, don't have antibodies. So this is actually telling me that evabrutinib, okay, is not inhibiting uh, BTK to any great extent, or at least it's not penetrating into the deep tissue components, com compartments such as the lymph nodes, and in inhibiting germinal center function. And the so the question I have does this also apply to the central nervous system? Because we were hoping these agents would go into the central nervous system and inhibit microglia and, uh, and uh, target CNS-resident CNS B cells and address some of the processes that is driving smoldering MS. So it's likely that ivabrutinib is, is not going to be a potent immunosuppressive drug, okay? and, and it's going to be interesting if this actually blunts its treatment response. In other words, in the phase three results, the drug's not going to be as efficacious as the anti-CD20s. 
Anyway, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the other BTK inhibitors if they actually show the same thing, um, because this may be uh, uh, an Achilles heel for for, for ivabrutinib. You know, if it isn't that potent compared to to the other ones in in trial, I personally would have expected BTK inhibitors um, to have inhibited or blunted vaccine responses. Anyway, that's just uh, one observation. The next uh, highlight was radiologically isolated syndrome. So you may or may not be aware that I've been running a campaign for quite a few years to try and redefine MS as a biological rather than a clinical radiological disease. And this is part of my MS is one, not two or three disease campaign. And part of that redefining MS as a biological disease is including asymptomatic MS or radiologically isolated syndrome as part of the diagnostic criteria. So the good news is that ectrams, there was the ARISE trial presented in the late-breaking session showing you that dimethyl fumarate actually reduces the conversion to MS, in other words, uh, having an attack by over 80%. This is not surprising. This is kind of expected simply because uh, I think radiologically isolated syndrome is MS, and if dimethyl fumarate works in people with multiple sclerosis, it should work in radiologically isolated syndrome. So this means now that the McDonald committee that uh, you know, design and update the diagnostic criteria are going to have to include a new diagnostic category, uh, what I would call asymptomatic MS, or even extended to include prodromal MS in the diagnostic criteria. And that also means that we in clinical practice now are probably going to have to highlight, uh, identify, or treat high-risk people with radiologically isolated syndrome. The next highlight, which was another uh, expected result, was the ocrelizumab versus rituximab uh, data that was presented in the late-breaking session from the MS base group. And what it showed was that when you propensity match people on rituximab and uh, ocrelizumab, okay, uh, used, uh, 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 rituximab was inferior in terms of its treatment effect. This is based on uh, 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 relapse uh, data. I'm not surprised because I've been saying for a while that uh, rituximab and particularly uh, the way it's used with uh, extended interval dosing, you know, in other words, redosing when B cells come back, is underdosing of anti-CD20. And the reason why I say that is in the oculizumab phase three program, we showed that people uh, or trial subjects who had the highest exposure to the drug based on body size did better in terms of disability progression. And that underpins the high-dose trials of oculizumab that are occurring right now, both in relapsing and primary progressive disease. So I actually think we're underdosing with anti-CD therapies, not overdosing. And rituximab is much less potent than oculizumab. So I'm not surprised at all that rituximab came out uh, inferior to oculizumab as a disease-modifying treatment in MS. Now, I must point out this is not a randomized study. So it depends on matching subjects at baseline using this statistical technique called propensity matching, where you look at all the factors that you think may affect disease cause and you try and match these patients. In other words, find pairs of the patients at baseline. So I think this will be not accepted by the MS community as definitive, and we have to wait for randomized controlled trials. And there are several head-to-head -head studies occurring at the moment of rituximab versus ocrelizumab. I predict that these trials will show the opposite of what people expect, because people are expecting rituximab to be non-inferior to oculizumab, in other words, equivalent. And I suspect rituximab, particularly the way it's used, is going to be inferior to oculizumab. So I would say, based on this data, uh, we should continue to use oculizumab at its licensed dose of 600 milligrams every six months. Um, and we 
uh, and we should continue to prescribe the licensed products in high-income countries. Um, my opinion uh, is that in low, in low and low middle-income countries where access to disease-modifying therapy are poor because of cost, um, I would have no hesitation in recommending uh, uh, biosimilar rituximab, which is much cheaper uh, and affordable than ocrelizumab, because it's better to have your MS treated with rituximab than not to have it treated. So this is not about a, you know, a blanket recommendation across the world. I think we have to be pragmatic. In countries that have high income, high incomes and have socialized healthcare where governments or insurance are paying for your treatment, I think you're better off on, a, on ocrelizumab at the licensed six monthly dose than taking a chance on lower doses uh, that I don't think are effective. Anyway, there is a lot of, a lot of my, on the MSLF um, site about this, and I would refer you to pre, two previous MSLF newsletters, uh, one on, on are we ready for adaptive ocrelizumab dosing, and the other one on ocrelizumab ofatumumab, which would you choose? Both of these goes, goes into the science behind high-dose anti-CD20 therapy. Um, has been more effective, in my opinion, than low-dose anti-CD20 therapy. My next highlight was that another late breaker was um, uh, autologous hemopoietic stem cell therapy versus natalizumab. This again was a registry study, and it took the data from people with multiple sclerosis with secondary or primary progressive MS from six uh, AHSC, AHSCT centers, uh, Ottawa in Canada, uh, Uppsala, Sheffield, Bergen, Sydney, and Melbourne, and combined them with patients in MS space. And again, they matched them with people who uh, had secondary progressive multiple, or had progressive multiple grosses started on natalizumab. And uh, no surprise, uh, uh, in this particular population, hemopoietic stem cell transplant was no better than natalizumab in terms of uh, clinical outcomes. What was quite clear, though, is the hemopoietic stem, stem cell group had a much higher risk of life-threatening adverse events. And this is kind of in keeping with what we know from the meta-analysis of HACT in secondary progressive and primary progressive MS. It does work, but doesn't work that well. Um, so based on this analysis, I think it would be very hard to justify referring patients with progressive MS for HACT. I suppose the caveat to this is we don't have natalizumab licensed in the UK or in most countries for treating of progressive disease. And I think this is a great pity because Biogen, uh, when they did the ASCEND or natalizumab in second progressive MS trial, um, they designed it poorly and they should have done it for three years rather than two years. And so the so-called therapeutic lag, uh, in other words, it takes time to show treatment effect, particularly in lower limb function in people with more advanced disease wasn't taken into account. I have little doubt that natalizumab works in people with more advanced disease. Uh, it's just that the trial primary outcome was negative, so it never got into the label. Anyway, you, are, you may want to find out um, more behind uh, my thinking in terms of natalizumab and progressive MS. And I've got an MS selfie um, letter from June of this year that you can click on and the uh, um, the, um, the title of that newsletter is Why is Natalizumab Not Licensed to Treat Progressive MS? <clears throat> I think the um, big proponents of HACT are going to find uh, this particular study difficult to uh, accept. Um, you know, they think HACT is the uh, panacea for all of MS. 
But again, this is a important uh, study highlighting that in advanced MS HACT is not superior to um, one of our highly effective therapies such as uh, natalizumab. Um, my next highlight was flipping the pyramid and smoldering MS, and this was really um, across many platforms, this topic. Um, I don't want to reiterate, I've gone through this many times uh, in various MS selfies, but it's quite clear now that people who go on to high-efficacy treatments first line, in other words, have the pyramid flipped, do better on average, uh, compared to people who go on to um, you know, low or moderate efficacy therapy and then es get escalated, either slowly or rapidly. However, you know, they don't do well. So this is what I would call timer's brain. Um, I think it's going to be important for us to take this on board because we we have this policy document, you know, uh, time matters, you know, um, MS brain health time matters. And I think it's time for us to update that now because the evidence base supporting flipping the pyramid now is quite overwhelming. And I don't think we have equipoise anymore in terms of randomizing patients to trials where you're comparing flipping the pyramid with uh, escalation therapy. So um, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and try and get some funding to uh, uh, upgrade our uh, policy statement to include flipping the pyramid. Anyway, the other issue was smoldering MS. In other words, a lot of worsening of MS disease activity occurs you know, beyond inflammatory disease activity, beyond relapses and focal MRI activity. And there was enormous numbers of sessions and talks and discussions around smoldering MS and the processes driving uh, progression independent of relapse activity. And so this is, uh, I would have said, one of the, probably one of the major themes of this year's ECTRAMS was looking beyond inflammatory disease activity. And this is kind of why the BTK inhibitors are so exciting because they are targeting uh, central nervous system and spinal cord B cell activity, and they're also inhibiting microglia. Anyway, I gave a, a Hot Topics presentation on this, and I did a practice session the day before, uh, uh, and I've uploaded it to YouTube. My talk changed slightly, but it gives you the gist of my uh, arguments if you prepare to watch that. Um, finally, um, the other highlight was a negative study, which was around vitamin D supplementation. So this was the prevent, uh, the prevent uh, uh, ANS, uh, PREVANS study that was done in Australia, where people with clinical isolated syndrome uh, were randomized to three doses of vitamin D uh, or placebo. They were either given 1,000 international units 5,000 or 10,000 per day or placebo. And the trial was a negative. This vitamin D supplements did not have an impact on conversion to MS, in other words, next attack or, or, or clinical activity. So I suppose this is one of the nails in the coffin. Um, some people would argue that the study was empowered sufficiently. I'm not sure because the overwhelming evidence now is that the low vitamin D levels we see in people multiple sclerosis is due to consumption of vitamin D and that vitamin D supplements are not a disease-modifying therapy. We call this reverse causation. And I think if you look across the literature, any inflammatory disease or all inflammatory diseases are associated with low vitamin D levels. And the reason for that is the inflammatory cells, as they become metabolically active and divide, consume vitamin D. And so taking vitamin D supplements in MS is not about disease modification. What isn't answered by this, though, is even earlier, in other words, start taking vitamin D supplements long before you develop 
pathological disease, can it prevent MS? And I think that's a different question. A preventive study long before you have your first clinical event uh, needs to be done. Uh, and the, re the reasons for that are, are related to the epidemiology outside of multiple sclerosis as well. Um, I wouldn't suggest you stop taking your vitamin D supplements because one of the reasons why we take vitamin D is for bone health. And we know that people with multiple sclerosis are at a very high risk of having thin bones, either osteopenia or osteoporosis. And so by keeping yourself vitamin D replete by taking vitamin D supplements, you're hoping to uh, prevent yourself getting uh, 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 these complications. So I um, encourage people with multiple sclerosis to take vitamin D supplements for bone health not to treat your multiple sclerosis. I'm aware that some people will criticize the study for not studying even higher doses of vitamin D supplements. But in my opinion, the evidence that very high doses or ultra high doses of vitamin D make any difference in MS is poor. Uh, it's based on anecdotal evidence, observational data, until we get randomized controlled trials, which I'll be surprised if anybody's going to do, testing those ultra high doses. Um, uh, I can't recommend people take those doses of vitamin D. Anyway, for more information on my recommendations around vitamin D supplements and which dose, I would also refer you to a previous MS Health newsletter on vitamin D supplements, what dose, and this is from September um, uh, 2021. Um, anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Um, please, if you've got any uh, questions, ask them. I'll try and get back to you. And if you can afford to, please become a paying subscriber. We're hoping to uh, make a big difference uh, when we when we launch our uh, microsite that is created and our teaching program probably early next year. Thank you.